Thanks for joining us here at Temple Baptist Church in Centralia, Illinois, where we are a community of people who are not perfect and don't pretend to be. If you would like to see other resources or learn more about our ministry, check out www.tbccentralia.com. Our hope and prayer is that through the following message, you are encouraged, blessed, and inspired to meet the Lord in a powerful way. So at the end of our life, there's no bigger question than this. What does it take to be made right with God? See, if you ask that question, you're going to get many different answers. Today, we live in a spiritually pluralistic society. In other words, tolerance has become a really high value. And it's something that's very common today for us to hear or uh, have people say things like this. All roads lead to God. Or, it does not really matter what you believe as long as you are sincere. Or you may have heard this, all religions are essentially the same anyway. You may have seen the bumper sticker that says coexist and it has the symbol for multiple different religions. And the reality is that we live in a society that accepts that there's universal truths amongst all the different religions and that they all try to kind of say the same thing. But if you boil down religions and you kind of look a little bit closer, you're going to see that there is uh, three religions that are based off of uh, Abraham, Father Abraham, the patriarch. That first one is Judaism. And Judaism was um, based off of Abraham, who was born about 2000 B.C. And if you look for his bones today, the bones of Abraham and his wife Sarah, they're located in the ancient city of Hebron in the West Bank of Israel. The other religion that's based off of um, Abraham is Islam. And there the prophet Muhammad, who uh, died about 632, and his body is located today in Medina, Saudi Arabia. And then the third religion that was based off of Abraham the patriarch is Christianity. And if you went just outside Jerusalem, you would find the tomb today, and it's empty. You see, that's what Easter points us beyond the tragedy of the cross to the hope of an empty tomb. I'll bet many of you have asked, why in the world do we call Good Friday Good Friday when that's the day that they crucified our Savior? The, the reason why is it has nothing to do with him being crucified on that day. This was a cultural norm back in the 1500s where they, have, I don't know if you knew this, but um, holidays used to be start, they used to be called holy days. And then we've taken the holy part away from them and made them holiday. If you go to Europe today, they have, uh, if they go on vacation, they call it going on holiday. Well, when it comes to um, the, the empty tomb, we know that Good Friday was really, they used to call a, any holy day a good day. So Friday was a Good Friday, actually called a Wednesday, Good Wednesday. And if you, if you do a, a historical search, you'll see that it really wasn't about the crucifixion. It was just a, a way to say um, a holy day. But I can tell you this, that it is because the tomb is empty that on this Easter Sunday, literally millions and millions of other Jesus followers and hundreds of thousands of churches all across the globe have gathered today together to celebrate the greatest event of mankind. 
that three days after the death of Jesus, the stone was rolled away. The tomb was empty. Christ was not there. He was risen from the dead. And because of that, we gather here today to celebrate the goodness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So some may ask, just who was Jesus? You know, Jesus asked his disciples that. Who do men say that I am? And they gave him many different answers. Let me tell you a little bit about Jesus. You see, Jesus possessed no certificates nor degrees. He never traveled farther than 100 miles from the place he was born. He wrote no books, composed no poems, compiled no documents. The only sentence that we're aware that he wrote was a single line in the sand which disappeared by the end of the day. And yet more books have been written about him and his words than any other man. He has affected the lives of more people than all the authors of the ages. You see, the story of his life has been translated into more than 1,800 different languages. It's been read by countless millions, and today it continues to be a bestseller every year. You see, Jesus was not an orator, and yet no man ever spoke like this man. He used few adjectives, yet his sentences abound with beauty, meaning, and grace. His sayings are hammered into polished marble, chiseled into imperishable granite, wrought into enduring bronze tablets, fashioned in stained glass windows, etched in rich mosaics upon temple walls, and set in the arched domes of colossal cathedrals. Jesus was not a poet, yet he inspired thousands to utter the most sublime expressions. He was not a musician, yet he inspired Mozart, Beethoven, and Handel. He was not an artist, sculptor, or painter, yet he was the inspiration for Raphael and Michelangelo. He was not a lawyer, yet he knew and interpreted the law. He was not a doctor, yet he healed the sick, opened up blind eyes, cleansed the leper, and raised the dead. He never held an official position, yet he founded a kingdom. He was not a general, yet he conquered the world. In war and peace, in good times or bad, it remains true that no single word grips the hearts of men like the name of Jesus. You know, it does not suffice to say that history bears his imprint because, without exaggeration, a great historian so accurately declared, the simple record of Christ's active life has done more to regenerate mankind than any other influence felt upon the face of the earth. If you doubt this, Just imagine what life would be like if suddenly the name of Jesus and everything that it stood for was torn away from us. Because that is exactly where the disciples were almost 2,000 years ago, gathered in a house in Jerusalem on the first day of the week. And one of those that was gathered with them was named Simon Peter. You know Peter. He was the one, the first disciple called by Jesus with two words, follow me. You probably know Peter. He was the first listed apostle by the early church. He was called the prince of apostles. But I'll bet that that's not what you think about when you think about Peter. You remember Peter because he was the one who got out, walked on water, and what? He sank. You remember Peter because he was rejected by Jesus. And when Jesus said, get thee behind me, Satan. You probably remember that Peter was loud in his proclamations, but quiet in his follow-through. If you would turn into your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26, I'm going to read verses 31 through 35.
Then Jesus said to them, Tonight all of you will run away from me because, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But after I have been resurrected, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter does what Peter normally does. And he said, Even if everyone runs away because of you, I will never run away, Lord. Now, I could only imagine that Jesus kind of gave him a modern day, uh, which part of all do you not understand, Peter, when he says this in verse 34, I assure you, Jesus said to him, tonight before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Uh Uh-oh, Peter comes right back and he says this in verse 35, even if I have to die with you, Peter told him, I will never deny you. And all the disciples said the same thing. Now, let me, let me just get the, the record straight. This is not about putting Peter down. I am confident that we have all made commitments to God that we did not follow through on. Matter of fact, let me take a little poll here with a show of hands. Raise your hand if you've ever made a promise to God but failed to keep it. Yeah, you know, it's just like the death rate, 100%. You know, see, we've all committed to start doing something, but have stopped, or maybe even never ever started it. We've probably all committed to God that we're going to stop doing something, but found yourself living the same habit the very day that you made that commitment. I don't know what you committed to and what you've come up short with, but I'm pretty sure all of us can relate to the disciple called Peter. Have you ever made this prayer, Lord, bring someone across my path so that I can witness to them? And then he does, and you're like, ooh, not that person. You know, give me someone that looks less scary. Here's what I can tell you. Then I know I have made my share of commitments. It amazes me that God could still use me out of all the times that I made commitments to him and let him down. You know, I have a lot of my family here today, and I'll bet that it amazes them that I'm up here being able to preach today. Because they know me. They know the best, but they probably know a lot more of the worst that I've experienced and been through. But what I want to do is I want to finish reading in Matthew 26. If you'll jump down to verse 69, it says this. Now Peter was sitting outside in the courtyard. A servant approached him and she said, you were with Jesus the Galilean too. But he denied it in front of everyone. He said, I don't know what you're talking about. See, And then he gets uncomfortable and he moves. See, that's what happens to us. When we make a commitment to God and then we fall flat on our face, which we do, all of a sudden we get uncomfortable and we move. And usually what that move looks like is we quit going to church. Or we stop working in one of the ministries in the church that we're a part of. And then verse 71 says, when he, when Peter had gone out to the gateway, see, he moved from inside the court where there was hundreds of people. This is where Jesus is being beaten. He's being whipped and being scourged. That's what's going on. That's where Peter was. Now, look, my hat's off to Peter. Where were the other disciples? Yeah, they weren't even inside the courtyard. They weren't even that close. In verse 71, it says, When he had gone out to the gateway, another woman saw him and told those that were there, and she said it loud enough that he could hear, This man was with Jesus the Nazarene. And again he denied it with an oath, I don't know the man. 
It's like with right hand, he put his hand on the Bible if they had it back then, and he swears, I don't know this guy. Well, that happens to us too. We make commitments to God and we get a little further away and then all of a sudden our calendar doesn't match up with the church calendar and so we've got other commitments that we need to take care of. In verse 73, and after a little while, those that were standing there approached, they walk up to Peter and they say to him, you certainly are one of them since even your accent gives you away. Now watch this. To prove them wrong once more, he launches into a profanity-laden performance. Remember, what was Peter before he became a disciple? He was a fisherman. And if we don't know anything else about fishermen, sometimes, and think about a sailor, they can be a little colorful with their language. And it says in verse 74, then he started to curse and to swear with an oath, I do not know the man. Let me give you a 2018 version. I do not know the blankety blank, blank, blank guy over there. That's what Peter was doing in front of Jesus. And folks, I'm confident that Peter's not the only person that's ever walked this earth that has said something like that. Verse 74, then he started to curse and to swear with an oath, I do not know the man, and immediately a rooster crowed. What you don't know and what's not captured in this verse is, over the next 21 days, life is hard for Peter. If you read the next verse in Matthew, it says that he, he left the garden, that, that, that area that he was at, and he wept bitterly. And over the next 21 days, Jesus appears to his disciples three times. Now, what I find interesting is that it's not until 21 days later that Peter gets restored to Jesus. Not, it wasn't because Jesus... Because Jesus was there for them. But I, I promise you, every time that Jesus showed up, Peter was in a corner. He was embarrassed. He was embarrassed because Jesus, in, in another verse in Luke, it says that as the cock crowed, Jesus was looking at Peter. Twenty-one days later, in the book of John, in, in chapter 21, I believe it is, you'll see that Peter says this to all the disciples. He goes, I'm going fishing. Now, folks, he did not mean it was Saturday afternoon and he was going to go out and have a leisure time. What I believe Peter was saying was, I quit this disciple stuff. I give up. I'm going back to what I used to do, what I'm comfortable with. I'm going to be a fisherman again. And while they're out there, guess what happens? They catch nothing. Now, I don't know about you, but I like going fishing, but, but I like doing so. I like going catching. All right? I don't like going worm drowning. I don't like going getting sick on the boat. I like going catching stuff. And that's what Peter and his fellow fishermen, they, you know why they wanted to catch stuff? Because that's what they counted on to make money, to live on. And they didn't catch anything all, all night long. And then as the daylight's coming, they're getting close back to shore where they're going to clean out the nets. And there's a guy standing on the shore and he says, cast your nets on the other side. And these guys are like, you know what? I don't, we're fishermen. We know what we're doing. But because you said it, we'll do it. And they throw the nets over on the other side and they catch this crazy amount of fish. And then John, he's like elbowing Peter. He goes, that. It's Jesus. 
Because what you don't know is the first time that Jesus called Peter with the words, follow me, he did the exact same thing. They had just had a night where they were fishing, nothing. Jesus takes them out and says, look, try it one more time. They go, okay, because you asked that we will. They do that and they catch this amount of fish and Peter falls down in front of Jesus and says, depart from me, I'm not worthy. And, and John tells us that Peter dove into the water, he gets to the shore, and I, I believe that Peter fell on his knees in front of Jesus. And he said those same words, depart from me. Why? Because he had just denied him. And Jesus told him he was going to. And Peter said, that ain't going to happen, Jesus. Why do you think Peter denied Jesus? Because he did not want to die. But if you go back, the very words that Peter said was, I will die with you. And yet, less than six hours later, he's not willing to. This past uh, week, we um, are getting together as a family. And you'll probably see a lot of us today after the church service. But as I think of Peter, and I think of the fact that he uh, let God down, he gets restored, I think of the fact of this, that hope rises above our past. It certainly rose above the past of Peter. And if you'll read in verse, uh, 1 Peter 5, verse 10 with me, the verse says this, now, the God of, now think about this. Peter writes two letters. At the end of one letter, the very next to last sentence that he writes are these words. And it's, now the God of all grace who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus will personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little. Let me ask you something. If you deny Jesus and he sees you doing it, do you think that you suffer a little bit? Yes. You know, Peter knows what it's like to suffer a little bit. And here's what's interesting. Is it's the last words that he's going to say to a group of believers, and he tells them this. The God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will personally restore, establish, strengthen, and support you after you have suffered a little bit. You see, hope rises above our past because Jesus Christ will personally restore us even though we let him down. So our family is together. And the whole reason we got together was 10 years ago we lost our mom. Mom passed away. And I think about great memories I've had with mom. And, you know, one of those is when I was just maybe six years old or five, four years old. Five, I don't remember. But I would walk in on mom in, in her bedroom and she would be on her knees praying. And I'd hear her pray for me. One of the best memories I have of my mom. Another one is, uh, I was a little bit older. I was uh, 16 or 17 years old, and we're driving down the road. And uh, I was a very good driver. <laughs> and as we were driving, I remember it was, uh, in Clarksville, Tennessee, going down 41A. And um, uh, my mom didn't like how I was using my uh, NASCAR skills, and I was drafting one of the cars in front of me. And she said, you know... You, you need to slow down a little bit and, and don't get so close to these cars. And I made the mistake a 16 or 17-year-old makes, and, and I looked over and I said, look, if you don't like my driving, and I didn't get anything else out, because my mom said, pull over. She drove. One of the best memories, one of the... If I had to give them all up, one I don't want to give up was... 
come back from Afghanistan. And I'm coming through the airport gate. And there's mom. She can barely walk. And she runs with this little American flag. Woo. <laughs> Fast forward about four months. Just down the road, Hopkinsville, Kentucky. We're all gathered at Jenny Stewart Hospital in the ICU room. And we know that she probably has less than an hour, half hour to live. And I'm in the room, and I'm holding her chubby hands. Now, moms, I want you to hear something. I couldn't say that around her. She beat me up. We don't care what you look like. Your kids love you. No matter what you feel. And so here I am. I'm holding her chubby hand in a hospital. And we're surrounded. There's 12. I mean, many of them are here in the room today. And we're praying. We're singing. She's got five minutes left. And then all of a sudden, you can tell she's taking her last breath. And all of a sudden... This heartbeat stops. Yeah. And all of a sudden, I don't know if you've ever been around a body when someone's passed away, but there's a difference between when they're alive and when they're dead. And you could see it. And I knew that mom wasn't there anymore. And so I left the room. And I'll be honest with you. It's hard to talk about. And afterward, I cried. I cry every time we get to this time of year. I could fill a gallon jug with the tears. But what I want you to understand is all those tears that I've cried for my mom have been selfish. See, mom hurt, and she, those last couple years were tough, and she's in a much, much better place. And so all the times I'm crying is I don't want her back because I want her to be in pain again. I want her back because, you know what, I just need to be able to walk into the other room, and she's there. I need to be able to pick up my phone, and she answers. I need to be able to open up my email and get this email with a bunch of stickers on it from my mom. But I got to tell you, I wouldn't take mom from that better place she's at and ask her to come down for all my selfish reasons, not one moment. I don't know if you heard about this, but about six weeks ago, Billy Graham passed away. And I find it interesting, and you'll see this if you look on the, uh, the note taker on the back. There's a quote there I want to read to you. And Billy Graham wrote this. He said, someday you will read or hear that Billy Graham is dead, but don't you believe a word of it. I shall be more alive than I am now. I will just have changed my address. I will have gone into the presence of God. And that's exactly what happened with my mom. She had changed her address and gone into the presence of God. You know, Paul tells us in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 this. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers. And so, ladies and gentlemen, I don't want you to be uninformed. Let's hear what Paul says concerning those who are asleep, those who have died, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. Since we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way God will bring him those who have fallen asleep through Jesus. 
See, I believe that, and because of that, I know that hope rises beyond the grave. I don't know why all of this is happening uh, right about now, but one of the, the classmates that I went to high school with recently passed away. And, you know, when your parents pass away, you kind of expect that. But when this one of your peers, someone that's the same age as you, somebody that you ran around a basketball court with, when they start passing away, all of a sudden you start thinking about things a little bit differently. And so I want to introduce you all to the concept of eternity because when I think about my classmate dying, I think about eternity. The problem is that for a lot of people, eternity is just an empty notion. For them, eternity and death is no more significant than taxes. Have you heard of that quote? There's only two things that are certain, death and taxes. Yep. It's funny. Uh, we were talking about a restaurant that we love down in um, Fort Walton Beach, Florida. And as we were talking about it, I just found out that the, the person who owned it lost everything because they weren't paying their taxes. But, you know, the reality for us is the very same thing. That one day, death is going to come upon all of us. And if, you know, just like that business owner, you ignore the fact that there's taxes that are due. If you ignore that, 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 that someday your body is going to die. Let me tell you what happened. You know, I just saw a news article that the Pope said that there is no hell. Now, folks, uh, don't, get me, don't get too offended here, but the Pope is wrong. And, and, and let me tell you the truth. The truth is this, that our life is but the threshold of eternity. You see, we are created with a body, mind, and soul. The body one day will pass away, will die. But the Greek word for soul in the Bible is it's, um, suke, or it's the root word for psychology that we use. I'm going to read a verse to you. You don't have to turn there, but Ecclesiastes in 12 verse 1, it says this. So remember your creator in the days of your youth. Why? Because many days of adversity are going to come and the years approach you will say, I have no delight in them. And then there's a whole chapter of bad things that happen in life. In the verse 7, it says, and dust returns to the earth as it once was. The dust that we as humans were made from and your spirit returns to the God who gave it. See, that's uh, when eternity starts. Eternal life is described in the Bible as present tense. Jesus himself said in John chapter 5, in the 24th verse, he said, I assure you, anyone who hears my word and believes him who sent me, God the Father, has eternal life and will not come under judgment, but has passed from death to life. There's a very popular movie out right now called I Can Only Imagine. And in that, Bart Millard, he is talking to his father. And I love this one scene. And he, he and his father are, are rekindling uh, their relationship. And Bart looks over at him. And he says, Dad, are you dying? And his dad said, yes, I am. And his dad had uh, pancreatic cancer. And, that, and he was absolutely going to be dying in, in, a, in a short while. But you know what? The reality is that every one of us here in this room should be able to answer that question the same way. That we are all dying. Our physical body one day will cease to breathe. And at that point, our soul will go back to our creator. The question is, what happens when that 
occurs? Well, Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1, verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Why do so many people get excited about Easter? Because of that verse right there. We have hope because Jesus Christ arose from the grave. So what is Peter telling us? I'll tell you this. Peter is telling us that hope rises throughout eternity. The whole New Testament resounds with the reality of the resurrection. You see, Christianity is not built upon a complex set of ideals, but on a historical event, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus will take a lost man and show him the way. He'll take those that are down and lift them up. He'll take the unforgivable and give them forgiveness. Because Jesus Christ is a resurrected Lord. It's because he's enduringly strong, entirely sincere, emotionally steadfast, immortally graceful, and impartially merciful. He's the most unique, unparalleled, unprecedented, loving Savior. He's the loftiest theme in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the miracle of the ages. He's the embodiment of everything that is good. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord. He supplies strength to the weak, and he meets the needs of the poor. He forgives sinners, discharges debts, delivers captive, and defends the defenseless. He's the key to knowledge and the wellspring to wisdom. He's the doorway to deliverance, and he is the pathway to peace. Peter tried to keep him on the cross, but he couldn't. Keep him from the cross, but he couldn't. Pilate investigated his accusations, but couldn't find any fault in him. Death could not defeat him, and the grave could not hold him. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord. He has no predecessors, no successors. You cannot impeach him, and he will not resign. He's unmoved, unchanged, undefeated, and his work on the cross will never be undone. He always was, he always is, and he always will be. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord. The world can't understand him. Armies cannot defeat him. Schools can't explain him. And intellectuals can only deny him. You see, the Pharisees couldn't confuse him. New age can't replace him. And unbelievers cannot explain him away. Why? Because Jesus Christ is the resurrected Lord. If you stumble, he'll lift you up. If you sin again, he'll forgive you once more. If you're weak one more time, he offers to be your strength. If you're lost, he'll show you the way. If you're afraid, he'll give you courage. When you're hurt, he'll bring you healing. When you're hungry, he offers to feed you. When you're blind, he'll safely lead you. When you face trials, he stands right there beside you. When you experience loss, he is there to comfort you. And when you face death, he'll take you home. His ways are right. His word is eternal. His will is unchanged. And I'm here to tell you that his word is his bond. His blood is his power. And he gave all of this to you and to me 2,000 years ago. You know, life is hard enough, but it would be intolerable without the message of Easter. 
The resurrection is what made the difference in changing Peter. From a coward who cursed to prove that he wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ to a, and a man without hope into the prince of apostles. You see, in Acts 1, it was Peter who proclaimed, These men are not drunk as you suppose, but they're filled with the Holy Spirit. In Acts chapter 2, it was Peter who preached and 3,000 people were saved. In Acts chapter 3, it was Peter who said to a layman that was sitting right beside the temple, Silver and gold have I none, but what I have I give you. Get up and walk. In Acts chapter 4, it was Peter who tells the very same Sanhedrin that, wanted to ki- that, that were responsible for killing Jesus. Whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. But we are unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. In Acts chapter 5, under trial with his life on the line, Peter once more says this. We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you had murdered, by hanging him on a tree. God exalted this man to his right hand as ruler and savior, to grant repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. We are witnesses of these things, and so is the Holy Spirit, whom God has given us to obey. That's what happened to Peter. The resurrection is what allowed hope to rise and change Peter from a coward into the bold person that we see in Acts. It was a resurrection that allowed hope to rise and makes all the difference in losing my mom. It was a resurrection that allowed hope to rise and change a 16-year-old son of a dairy farmer and trans him into the, transform him into the greatest evangelist of our day. The resurrection is what makes Christianity different from Judaism, Islam, Buddhism, and any of the other religions that are out there. And it's what will make the difference for eternity. You know, the only real question that you have the answer is this. Will the resurrection make a difference in your life? As a church, it's our honor to play a small part in all that God is doing in and through your life. And we would love to continue with you on that journey. To find out what your next steps could be in your relationship with Christ, simply go to www.tvccentralia.com forward slash next. You see, here at TBCC, it's our mission to lead people to become fully devoted followers of Christ who walk by faith and not by sight.